Welcome to What's Left, a weekly political discussion challenging the mainstream left. I'm Eduardo Barca with co-host, teacher and socialist Andy Lipson, and community organizer and socialist Kenny Cepeda. We are online at what-s-left.webnode.com. Please subscribe, rate, review, turn on your notifications, and share your favorite episode wherever you found this episode. Thank you. Uh, today we'll be discussing um, a great article by Fabio Vigis from the Philosophical Salon, uh, and it is called A Self-Fulfilling Prophecy, Systemic, Systemic Collapse and Pandemic Simulation. Uh, it's a great article that Andy has shared with us, and we've invited Rob Doyle, who has been in uh, a separate episode with us before, uh, to discuss a conversation between the left and right. And we will link to that episode in the notes, uh, episode notes below. And Robert Doyle uh, is uh, from Ohio, and he has been in the financial sector, sector since 1992. He has been in banking since 2010. He was the president and CEO of a community bank, and now part of a holding bank holding company, and is their SVP of special assets. Welcome, Rob. Thanks, Eduardo. Um, appreciate you guys having me on. Um, I like this format. I love your show. And um, I think it's really informative to get everyone to understand some of the parts in this article because he dives a lot into macroeconomics and how things are being done at the Federal Reserve level and throughout the banking and how banking is impacting people throughout the pandemic from day one to down. And I think I can bring some perspective to people um, throughout the spectrum of, uh, of political thought, whether you're right, left, center, or otherwise. Um, I don't come at it from a left point of view, but I think there's a lot of commonality in this article when I read it that spoke to me personally that, you know, this, this pandemic is when you start to start to line up the dots, it's not a good situation as to where we're headed as, a, as an economy and how that's going to continue to adversely impact um, people who are not not at a certain economic level, whether that's income, whether that's wealth, whether that's the color of your skin, frankly. Um, I think that there's a lot to be said along all those areas, and this article speaks to a, a lot of that. And I think what's happening in, the, in, 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 in this country right now is you're seeing the extreme sides of both, not I call it extreme, but the fringe, le the fringe levels of each side of right and left are now starting to kind of connect on the other, like almost like folding time. They're coming together and saying, wait a second, this is all a problem. Yeah. You know, this is affecting you and me. And why don't we both join up and do something about it rather than, you know, bicker and fight amongst ourselves. And I think that's one of the issues that's happening is, you know, like you've seen it in California, here come vaccine mandate, here comes mask mandate, here comes shutdowns. And then we're going we're gonna to create a tiered world now where if you have the vaccine and you got the passport, you get to participate. And if you don't, well, shit out of luck. And there's parts in this article that he doesn't get into too deep because I, I think he doesn't want to lose the reader in economic science. And I can bring some of those elements back in as well. So I'm looking forward to this discussion and um, ready to get going. Right. And before you do, before we delve deep into this article with you, and I just want to appreciate you being here, Rob, because, you know, from the start when Andy and I did this on um, What's Left and um, with Kenny as well, we 
one of the things I always said to him was, I don't know if I am the right person for an episode or for this show, for an, a show like this on YouTube, because I'm not an expert and I feel very hesitant to share anything that I might not be familiar with. And throughout this entire What's Left uh, journey that we have been on, uh, we have met amazing people who have brought their expertise, like Eric Lerner, a scientist, like Alison McDowell from Wrenching the Gears, who has shared a tremendous amount of uh, information about um, how blockchain will affect us all in the future, from John Kleisig, an author, um, from Jessica from Southern California, uh, a mother and researcher doing uh, delving into following, following the money from vaccine passports. So for our What's Left audience, anytime we have shared things, people may want to look into it further. And, and sometimes in the, in lost, we can get lost in the weeds, or at least I'll speak for myself, being inundated with information may be too difficult for me to digest alone. So I'm really appreciative of you having been here. And hopefully people watching this will be another great episode for people to follow as we try to right go into these weeds of um, the economics and how it affect and how it has affected so no? It makes sense yeah. of it. So I really do appreciate you bringing your expertise. And as I mentioned in your intro, you have quite extensive knowledge as far as it comes to the economics of the way how things function in our society. So thank you again for being here. You're welcome. So first off, I, I agree with what you said, Eduardo. I, Robert, I'm really grateful to have you here. Um, uh, and it's so, it's so interesting. Um, this article I found, it was, it was on a group posted on a Telegram group from the left lockdown skeptics. There's a socialist we had had, his name is David Fletcher, I think. Um, he had been on one of our socialist panels. He posted this um, article and said that this was the best Marxist analysis of what's, of what's behind what's happening with COVID that he'd read. And so I looked at it and what's meaningful for me about it as, and I think Robert, you know this, the Marxist response to this period has been awful. Like most people, most Reds, most socialists have really bought into the narrative that the government is trying to help us. And then sometimes even said that, oh, the government is underplaying COVID and, and that, you know, we have to keep ourselves away from each other. We have to, you know, we have to go into lockdown. We have to get ourselves all vaccinated. That's, those are Marxists. I'm not talking about those liberals. I'm saying those are Marxists saying that. And early on, I think one of the themes we talked about when, we, when this first was coming down is we talked about it a little bit like a controlled collapse of the economy. Like that was a term we used. I remember using that with Kenny and Eduardo was there as well, but we weren't really sure what was happening. We knew that there were some bad things going on in the economy. But what was meaningful for me about this article in particular is one, it was written by a Marxist. Two, it, it in no way, well, he basically summarized it. He says he doesn't buy the COVID narrative. In fact, he's saying, the stock market did not collapse in March of 2020 because of lockdowns imposed. He's saying lockdowns were imposed because financial mar markets were collapsing so that the lockdowns themselves are seen as an intervention by the capitalist class as a way of dealing not with COVID, but dealing with a, a collapsing economy. And I thought that was like an amazing way of looking at it. We'll get more into that. Um, and then really the, one of the first things he says in the opening paragraphs uh, that was meaningful to me, which frankly should be obvious to any Marxist, was this. He said, uh, you know, um, a year and a half after the arrival of, of, the, of, the, of virus, and this is the first paragraph, 
Some may have started wondering why the usual unscrupulous ruling elites decided to freeze the global profit-making machine in the face of a pathogen that targets almost exclusively the unproductive uh, sector of the economy. He said, only those who are unfamiliar with the wondrous ad adventures of global, global, cap, global capitalists can delude themselves into thinking that the system chose to shut down out of compassion. He said, let us be clear from the start, the big predators of oil, arms, and vaccines could not care less about humanity. And that is a very simple statement, but for some reason, all the Marxists have forgotten this, have forgotten that the most dangerous, from Marxist standpoint, the most dangerous force on the planet is not a virus, it's not a flu, it's not a tidal wave, it is the capitalist class. I'm not saying that Robert agrees with that, but that's basic Marxism, is to understand the capitalist class always has it in for you, it's always the most dangerous part. And that was his starting point for his analysis uh, as he goes in to saying, no, this, this lockdown, these measures that were taken were taken for financial reasons, not health reasons. Um, and that was really meaningful to me. Rob is here with us and where audience is mixed. Not everyone is a socialist, but people might assume that, you know, everyone here. And so we have a very interesting angle from Rob's perspective because he isn't necessarily a socialist. I don't think you are, uh, Rob, right? I am not a socialist, but I'm not a blind following, you know, sheeple. Um, that just goes along with the status quo above whether it's Republican or Democrat or like Andy has spoken out in other episodes that I've been on where, you know, the, the, the mainstream liberal Democrat and the mainstream conservative Republican, they're kind of the same person. They just have a different twist on how they're going to make things work the way they want them to. Um, so, I, you know, I come at it not necessarily from a, I'm not looking at this article from a political point of view as much as it is. I agree with what he says and a lot of what he says in this article um, because of when you start lining up his timeline, it really speaks to, well, was this a controlled collapse, uh, controlled um, situation? And why is why did everyone just go with the control, whether it's Federal Reserve control or whether it's government control of your your movement? You know, you can't have a job. Your business can't open. You can't go to work. And now all of a sudden we see it now on the vaccine side. Oh, you don't have the vaccine. Well, again, you can't go to work. You can't keep your business open. And I know from a Marxist point of view, it's probably like, well, we don't want to go back to the same old, same old. I think we got an opportunity here from left and right to maybe retool the economy or maybe retool how the economics of, of, of business works. Um, but I think government has a different plan for us. Kenny, what are your first impressions you were going to say? Yeah, I mean, I have, you know, very basic, like, uh, knowledge when it comes to, you know, the economy in terms of, you know, monetary policy, fiscal policy. Um, and a lot of what has happened reminds me in my short life, you know, I'm 34, but I remember 2001. I remember 2008, you know, in, in some of the parallels, you know, that um, when it comes to the economy, uh, that have shown up again, right? In some of the similar players, um, and so I've had a lot of questions. You know, it, it, I, I knew that the economy wasn't doing as great as people thought. You know, and so I found it suspicious that COVID came in that you know time frame. Uh, you know, and and also just like everyone else, I think um, the massive question: like, why would you know the 
the ultra rich, you know, why would the, you know, the, the capitalists of the world stop the world? You know, is this, is this uh, virus really that bad? Are they really that concerned that it can affect capitalism? So the narrative in, on the left has become that capitalism is failing. And, you know, we've taken a different position, you know, at least me, like, I, I believe it's restructuring itself. You know, there are different yes. places coming into play, you know, and, you know, that we've looked at the technocratic aspect, right? Like Silicon Valley type, the biotech, you know, companies. And, you know, we've argued that, you know, that, that there is a reason why, you know, these industries need to be pushed, right? To command the economy in the future. Uh, and, and they take precedence over other, you know, forms of capital, other sectors of capitalism. So capitalism is willing to sac sacrifice some sectors uh, of, you know, of its organism to be able to push ahead, you know, for the, because it was reaching limitations in so many ways. Um, you know, and I remember, you know, like a Marxist idea that, you know, the seeds of the next crisis are being planted right now. You know, I, I, I remember like looking at monetary policy, you know, in, you know, or, or the Federal Reserve, you know, in the taxes and then running out of room to really stimulate the economy in the way they used to. And I think Rob has more to say about this than I do. You know, I just have basic, uh, but again, going back to the article, that's where the article makes a great impression in me that it has a very persuasive, you know, chronological argument as to the reasons, the financial reasons behind the, the massive shutdown of the global economy. Because it wasn't just the U.S. and why would other, you know, countries buy into it? You know, that's the exactly. massive that people have. You know, that that's one reason the left gives that. Oh no, this is really bad. That's why other countries are buying in. But I think this makes a better case as to why they had to, or unless they really wanted to see the collapse, perhaps of you know of the system. Um, and so I think that's the uh, that's why I was impressed by the article, and I'm you know excited to hear what Rob has to contribute, you know, to give more depth to my understanding of this, um, because uh, with my limited understanding, I, I think, you know, it makes a lot of sense, you know, because it's the big players that got really rich in, after 2008, you know, BlackRock, Blackstone, you know, uh, and, you know, Larry Fink, you know, having a hand in the bailout in 2008, having, uh, you know, a hand in this one too, in this bailout, because we don't call it a bailout. And why, why, you know, what we've called a, a massive transfer of wealth, you know, probably the biggest transfer of wealth in the history of humanity. And yet no one is throwing a fit. Everyone's subjugated. No one is, there is no response. We, we're, we're in our knees, you know, by a, a big portion of the, you know, the working class is on their knees, you know, uh, being subjugated to this technocratic, you know, BS, you know, their job being replaced by, you know, in, in, you see who's getting richer, you know, you can go to the newspaper and, and, and see the basics of it. You know, it's not even the people in the middle, you know, the, the you know, uh, and so again, this is, this article gives a lot of context um, that I think um, starts a conversation for me, you know, it doesn't end here. This is the beginning of a conversation and it also adds, um, nuance and more context to the big picture because uh that's what i think we're trying to do here put a puzzle together how what is happening you know because it's not what mainstream is telling us whether it be the proletarian or democratic you know and so it's it's up to us people you know who have different angles of this and trying to put the picture together where we're going if we're you know if we want to have some sort of a response to it 
you know, at some point. I'm, I don't, I'm not a, I'm not a, a, a liberal, but I have used many liberal or progressive ways of frameworks of way the way you see the world. And one of them has to do with black privilege in the past. And as I'm recovering from those liberal uh, ways of those views, I still use it in some ways to be able to discuss things with my friends because I'm still in those liberal circles. I cannot help it. So I recently, and I'm not sure if anyone saw it on my Facebook, but I recently put down how um, check your privilege, hashtag check your privilege when lockdowns have affected poor people more than it has affected the rich. And, and that was in response to many people asking for lockdowns again for the winter. And so I thought that would be something I would make liberals feel guilty about. Like, you're really going to ask this of the poor again? And, uh, and, and that's why I put hashtag check your privilege. But looking at this article, I almost regret posting that because it's like I'm trying to make even liberals feel guilty or something when they are also the victims of what's happening here. And as we can clearly see, liberals have been duped by the powerful, right? The people in power and, you know, Wall Street and BlackRock and all the people listed, the criminals here are listed on this article. And I will just look at this, um, the, the two paragraphs that I'm not going to read entirely because I think we'll do some of that later, but I'll just point out the two, two paragraphs. It's where it says, is, is it therefore delusional to believe that the purpose of lockdowns is therapeutic and humanitarian? When has, the cap when has capital ever cared for the people? And if it was very therapeutic, and this is what struck to me, it's like, or very humanitarian on the part of the government, we would have done it a long time ago with the climate crisis, right? If that's how we're looking, because as we're seeing around the world, it's affecting a lot of people and they would have intervened if it was that important. If these altruistic uh, reasons uh, of lockdowns or even uh, saving lives under the guise, right? The economist right there, they, uh, this uh, Fabio pointed to an economist right there. As the economist Ellen Brown has said, right? That this is just another bailout under the cover of um, th this um, COVID, uh, specifically the virus. And so I am feeling very, I guess, very, sympathetic to a lot of people who have been duped, who have been misguided, who have been misdirected, who have been gaslighted, who have been um, in all forms um, been just tricked into this. And I also think that it's just going to be very difficult to discuss something like this because fear is very strong. It's one of this innate, very rudimentary feelings we feel as humans. And I understand it's challenging to discuss from a place of fear some of this. And I just posted before coming onto this something on one of my friend's timeline about how the pharmaceutical companies are making lots of money around this. And I copy and pasted one of them, something from the article and the link from here. And I'll see how they respond. And I imagine that it's just difficult to even look at that. It'll be difficult to see how big pharma spends about three times as much as big oil and twice as much as big tech on, in, on lobbying, you know? So, um, so anyhow, this is just my general impression of this. Thank you. You know, when we, we talk about this, the, 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 the COVID or we talk about the pandemic as a whole, 
you know, you got to go back to the history of pandemics a bit. And, you know, you go back to the 1918 uh, Spanish flu influenza, 50 million people die worldwide. It was horrific. But the one thing we're doing now, and like I think Kenny touched on it, I think it was Kenny, touched on it a few minutes ago, where the entire world, every country in the world decided we're just going to lock down our economy, help people are going to shutter in place and stay safe and you know, we're just going to huddle in our in our homes and then we're going to tell certain businesses they can open. And magically, guess who gets to open? Amazon, Walmart, um, any major, you know, fast food chain can still operate, you know. But the mom and pop restaurant, because they can't do the regulations that they're going to lay at their feet to comply with COVID, they're, they're, they're going to have to shut down. Or um, the little machine shop, you know, again, they can't comply. They're going to shut down. And those jobs, because those companies are so fragilely capitalized, they shut down and never come back. And that's where the, the, the mid-skilled and low-skilled workers don't have another job to go to. You know? Um, you know, this is also the first pandemic in which we told everyone to shut down. Everybody needs to shelter in place. We quarantined the healthy and we quarantined everyone. Doesn't matter, sick or otherwise. Most previous pandemics in the past, even 1918, if you were sick, you're quarantined, and you're either going to live or you're going to die in that quarantine. And then if the people around you, they're going to be quarantined, and the people you had direct contact with might be quarantined. But after that, if you're not identified through contact tracing as a direct contact or in that household, you weren't going to be quarantined. You were going to continue with your life. Yeah, you may be wearing a mask, or yes, you may have to take some precautions, but life continued. Now, granted, in 1918, everything was local. You know, you didn't have global economies. You didn't have supply chains. It was like grown there, farm to table. You know, the people who made the textiles down the mill, down the road, brought it to the town and sold it there. So it wasn't as, as complex an economy as we have today. But at the same time, you know, Every government across this globe shut down things. Every government across this globe, and everybody kind of went with it. And that's the, even the more scary part, in my opinion, that no one really stood up against it and said, well, wait a second, this virus only, you know, there's only a hospitalization rate of maybe 5% of infected. And then of those 5%, you know, only 1% or 2% of them end up dying. So that means if you take a percentage of percentage, you have like a 98.2% chance of dying. I mean, 90, I'm sorry, 98.2% of survival, rather. And we're going to destroy the economy. And because small businesses create almost half or a little over half of the jobs in this country, and they're not capitalized to withstand a significant shutdown, we're going to just eliminate those jobs. And that, that to me, is the crux of well, who got to survive this and what businesses and what industries and where did these monies go in each of these stimulus packages that we've passed? And we're going to try to pass another $4 trillion. Um, you know, that's the biggest problem I see. And it's like you were saying, Eduardo, where, you know, the bailouts occurred, but they weren't, but no one's saying anything about it. And Andy spoke to that earlier, too. Here comes the bailout. No one's saying a word about it. You know, before it was, we're gonna we're gonna bail out the banks in two eight oh nine. Well, there was pitchforks and torches. You know, why are we letting that happen? 
well, now we're just not even, it, it's just, we're in a phase of, in a fog and we're just letting it occur. And, you know, like you've pointed out in this article all the way through the timeline and how he presents it and the other items that he does present in this article, you know, you start to reveal the truth in my opinion. Um, the true truth of why do we shut everything down? Who is affected? Follow the money. Who benefits? Um, you know. So I think we should just now then go through the article and see um, if we could just go through the timeline and 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 and, and discuss from there. Okay. First of all, just to remember, remind ourselves, um, we're talking about when when people start to talk about COVID. I think we're talking about October and November in China of 2019. And then by December and January, it's being talked about as going to other places. And it's, that is, is what I, is what I you know, rec roughly recall. Um, so in this section um, of the article that's entitled Follow the Money, he writes, uh, in pre-COVID times, the world economy was on the verge of another colossal meltdown. Here is a brief chronicle of how the pressure was building up. And the first time point he talks about is June 2019, several months before anybody even heard of COVID. Uh, in its annual economic report, the Swiss-based Bank of International Settlements, BIS, uh, the central banks of all central banks, sets the international alarm bells ringing. The document highlights overheating in the leveraged loan market where credit standards have, have been deteriorating and collateralized loan obligations have surged, reminiscent of the steep rise in collateralized debt obligations that amplified the subprime crisis in 2008. Simply stated, the belly of the financial industry is once again full of junk. Okay, so he wrote that, but I think there's some terms there that could possibly, uh, Robert, use a few like, um, yeah. First of all, do you know much about the central bank of central banks, and maybe some of those things like leveraged loan, overheating leveraged mm -hmm. loan market, and collateralized loan obligations? So, are yeah. those the right questions, guys? Yes. Thank you for, for being here for this. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know much about the bank of banks, the central bank of all central banks, um, but obviously they did a white paper of some kind. Or you know, be able to start looking at aggregate um, collateralized loan obligations or collateralized debt obligations. Um, what those are is how you securitize loans and how banks get back liquidity. So let's talk back a second, just one second back to 08 and 09 and why that happened. And this will explain where he's coming from in this particular item. Back then, you had, you know, banks just loaning money to basically anybody leading up to 08, 09. Um, you know, banks got it into their heads because, you know, George W. Bush and also Clinton years, everybody needs a home. Everybody should have a home. Well, banks started thinking to themselves going in through and past 9-11, uh, 2001, well, how do we get people in homes? What's the biggest hurdle to a homeownership? Well, the biggest hurdle is a down payment. So what they started to do was let's create loans that down payments aren't nearly as emphasized. You don't need to have equity in the house. 
kind of like how a car is financed. If you can afford the car payment and your debt to income ratio is in line, you can afford the car, you get the car, you get the loan. Same thing was happening in the mortgage markets leading up to 08, 09. You know, everybody is going out there and not putting money down on homes. They were getting into homes because the the numbers say you can. They were also structuring different loan products. They were saying, oh, interest only for the first 10 years or balloon payment. So you can get in a much bigger house for a small amount of monthly payment until the piper needs paid, which is we're going to now convert you from a interest only loan to an actual loan. And then your payment triples and then you don't have the money. So what banks do when it comes to mortgages is a lot of banks will hold mortgages. That's called a portfolio loan. And other banks, because they have too many loans on their books compared to deposits, because that's how they fund their loans. Everybody deposits money in and loans go out the door. Well, if a bank has too many loans, they've got to sell some off. And they, that is called the secondary market. And the secondary market is really funded by Freddie and Fannie, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. So Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae come to that bank and say, give me your loan. We'll give you money. We'll give you your money back. So they sell the loan off in the secondary market to Freddie and Fannie. Freddie and Fannie then take all these loans together and put them in a ball because they're homogenous. It's all mortgage lending, right? Well, the problem was in 08, 09, you didn't know what was really inside that ball. And that's where you get into collateralized loan obligations, collateralized debt obligations. This is what is called a mortgage-backed security. It's the same general terminology. You're just having something of collateral backing up a loan. And they're taking all those loans in one big bundle, and they're creating a bond of that loan. And then they're selling pieces of that bond to institutional investors like a pension fund or other banks or individuals who have high net worth, who can afford to buy the minimum purchase, which is usually about a quarter million dollars. So. You have all these loans in a bundled security, like a bond, and you're getting a share in that bond. And as the bond pays off, you get income stream. Well, that's great if all the loans are structured the same way and everybody pays generally the same. But when you have a mix of loans, some loans are balloon, which means at the end of 10 years, you're going to pay the entire balance that's due at that time. Or interest only, or those who have conventional mortgages with down payments, if they're all mixed in there, you have some risks. You have a risk of people not paying when the piper comes due. So what happened in 08, 09 was, well, people stopped, certain sectors of those loans that were being structured stopped paying because they couldn't afford it. And what banks do when they start to invest in these mortgage-backed securities or CLOs or CDOs is they want to hedge their bet. So they go out to an insurance company like AIG and they, AIG created a something called a credit swap derivative. And a credit swap is just basically, if this loan goes south or this investment goes south, I can get insurance to pay for it and get myself made whole. Okay, now you got to know how insurance works. So insurance is everybody pays, they have tons of people on the insurance side paying premiums, and they try to pay out as little in claims as they possibly can. That's why when you say wreck a car and total it, you might have been on been a customer of theirs for 10 years. 
and you may have a thousand dollars a year for 10 years, it's 10 grand, but you just totaled a $50,000 BMW, you don't get dropped. Why? Because they've got a million other customers paying premiums that are never going to get a claim in for the rest of their natural born life. So that's the theory of insurance. So let's go back to these mortgage, these uh, credit swaps, these, these insurance claims that if these mortgages go south, they can get made whole. Well, imagine everyone starting to not pay at the same time. Imagine every bank holding those little tickets of insurance, all going to the insurance company and saying, we want our money back. You said you'd pay. We paid you like an option. We paid you in premium. And now we want paid because we can prove these loans are going south. Well, imagine all the banks coming together at once asking for their money. Well, the insurance companies don't, aren't capitalized like that. They are capitalized with very few claims coming in over a long period of time. So if everybody rushes to the insurance company and wants paid, the insurance company has to falter. And then they start to default on the credit swaps. And then the banks aren't getting made whole. And their liquidity is out the door because the loan is totally south and they're never going to get paid back. And so all of that created a perfect storm in 0809. And what he's talking about here in 2019 is CLOs and CDOs started to have some of those tremors. And at that point, he's saying, you know, the belly of the beast is full of junk again. I will say this, especially in the United States banking sector, we got away from fundamentals in 08 to 010. Some banks did. Most banks didn't, though. But the big ones did. Shearson Lehman, all that. They all got into things they shouldn't have been into. Well, how do banks get into those situations? Well, let's drop way back to 1929 to the Great Depression. Well, when the Depression hits, we pass a law called the Glass-Steagall Act. Glass-Steagall Act basically breaks down banks and says, you can do this as an investment bank and you can do this as a retail bank. And you cannot offer these types of investments and you cannot invest in other types of investments. Well, Clinton years come along and we get to thinking, hey, banks learn their lesson. Let's take away the Glass-Steagall Act. And they basically stripped the Glass-Steagall Act away. And then all of a sudden, you got wealth management, trust management, investment products, things banks used to not be able to offer. Investment banks now being able to do things that they weren't able to do before, or small retail banks actually getting into the investment banking sector. So all of these things converge in 08, 09, and it sweeps a lot of banks down and big, big investment firms that have been like Shearson Lehman, they were around for a hundred years gone in a minute. Um, but here comes GW Bush and even Obama, as he got into it and saw the shit storm that they created, you have to prop up the banking industry. So they created the, there was a, uh, I forget the name of it, but it was some type of uh, fund where every bank had a, put so much money up and or take so much money from the US government and then kind of have to prove, get their tentacle into that bank and be able to prove that they're a sound bank. And if they are, they can get out of their obligation to the government. So we prop the banking industry up in 0809, 010, 012, things start to work their way out. One great thing we had during those years was Ben Bernanke was the head of the Fed. His entire academic career was based on the Great Depression and the problems that 
occurred during the Great Depression and how we could have done something different. And that's where he came into board to start what is known as quantitative easing. And quantitative easing is just a fancy term for selling for, for the Fed to um, increase the money supply by buying bonds. Printing money, though, to buy those bonds. So the Fed's balance sheet goes from about $400 million in 07 to $4 trillion by the end of 2012 because of quantitative easing. They started pushing out bonds to push the money supply because there's these big holes in the economy. They're patching it up. Think of it like uh, doing drywall and putting mud on the seams, right? There's cracks in the seams. We're going to put this mud on it. It's printed money. We're going to sell these bonds and we're going to, we're going to plug the hole. Because we plugged the hole that was previously earning money in the economy, the economy will move forward. And we can get those dollars moving through the economy and we won't have inflation because there isn't anybody earning those dollars that would have earned it before. So that's how they did quantitative easing in 08, 09, 010 to plug those holes in the economy. And there was another hole in the economy we forget about. The auto industry took a dive at the same time. So two of the biggest assets people purchase and finance took a dive. Auto loans, mortgages, usually the bread and butter of banking, all go south at the same time. Auto industry goes south. Got to prop that up. Here comes their plug of the hole. Again, buying bonds to create money supply, but plugging holes where money was previously earned and letting it have time to get through the economy. So that's what they're talking about. I, I know I went on to a long dissertation here. But to understand what he's talking about in these, how he feels that subprime crisis was reemerging here in 2019. Remember, it wasn't necessarily a subprime crisis. It was an aggregate banking crisis because one other thing was happening in the banking industry that also isn't really focused on. Appraisals were out of control in 05, 06, 07 pumping up the price of these homes. Guess what's happening now, though? Try to buy a home in a mid-range price range right now. You better be coming to the table 20 grand above offer. And the appraiser is going to come in and say, yep, it's worth that because the house right down the street just sold for the same amount of money. And it's starting to bubble you know, in the, in the housing industry right now from an appraisal standpoint, not from a bank making a loan standpoint, which they were also doing based on those appraisers, they were also creating wacky loan products, like I said a minute ago. But now we have the appraisals going up and the banks kind of staying with it because it's told that this is now worth this amount of money. So we're starting to see the air getting pumped into the balloon again a bit right now in the housing market. And what he's talking about in 19 is CLOs and CDOs started to have junk inside those securitized bonds. And he feels that that was the beginning of where we're headed. So don't mean to make it too long winded. Um, is there any, I know I went through a lot of different yeah. things and yeah. um, got questions on what I was talking about. Yes. Yes. Um, so first off, is this necessarily another, is this a problem that we're seeing in a, in a global housing market or that, or that is, that's not what that was 2008. Is that what this is here? 
what he's talking about here is is reminiscent of that. He's feeling that because collateral loan obligations, they may not necessarily have mortgages in a CLO or collateralized debt. It's the same thing, debt and a loan. But they're collateralized, meaning there's a there's an asset behind it, whether it's a commercial real estate, whether it's um, a family home or whether it's a vacation home or whether it's a, you know, like a, I don't know, like say a, com- a, com- a company needs to buy a lathe to do woodwork. There's a collateral behind the asset. Now that that's a false sense of security because, you know, you think the if you're lending the money, the collateral should cover you and make you whole. Well, try selling a car that you're repossessed. How much are you going to get for that car at auction? You're not going to get your loan back. I'll tell you that right now. Um, selling a home that is what is considered other real estate owned by a bank. When they're trying to sell that house, they're not looking at the market. They just want to get rid of it. So a lot of times they'll sell it for less than the loan amount. Again, not being made whole. So while on paper, it seems like collateralized loan obligations where, well, there's collateral that backs the loan. It does, but not to 100% and it never will. And what I'm hearing here is that what he's essentially saying is another situation is growing where an aggregate or accumulated uh, loan debts are accumulating and those people who took out the loan cannot pay them back. And so someone's there's going to be a kind of a collective defaulting on the loan, which nails like companies and things like that. And that's what was in the that's what he's thinking. He's thinking these collateralized loan obligations, they're just taking a bank or an investment bank is taking a bundle of these loans. They've paid the banks for those loans and they, the banks themselves are made whole, but my, this investment firm now holds that paper. And so they put it into one bundled bond and they sell pieces of that bond to investors. Most investors think, again, collateral equals the loan. I'm safe. People are going to pay it because they don't want to get anything repossessed or foreclosed. So this is a safe investment. Well, if you have some bad underwriting inside there, if you took some risks as a bank and you have that in there, um, that could make that particular security not very sturdy, not very safe. And what he's thinking here is that's what's been happening out in the CLO and CDO world. Now, I I think he's talking a little more international because it is a Swiss-based bank that's doing this. So while they call it a collateral loan obligation, CLO, we might call it mortgage-backed security. Same basic thing, but they're just calling it a different me- They're calling it a different instrument, but it's the same thing. Then one last thing is what is meant by oh, what's being when they say overheating in the leveraged loan market, what's overheating? What does that mean? Well, I think what he's talking about there, leveraged loan market is where, you know, you're like when I said the words debt to income ratio, you are leveraging your income to take out that loan. Um, The leveraged loan market is these obligations that he's talking about, um, where people are getting overheated in that people are collateralizing them, selling and buying them amongst themselves. So when overheating is happening is what he's saying is, say I'm investment bank A and I have a CLO, I know it's going to go south. So I'm going to try to sell it at a discount just so I can get my liquidity back. I'm going to go to another investment bank and see if they'll buy it from me for 
85 cents on the dollar, 90 cents on the dollar. So they trade it, they get it a while, they work it, and then they get to the point that the low-hanging fruit is paid, the bad is still there. Let's push that into another CLO and see if we could sell that package. It's the same methodology that occurred in 0809, where they were just putting risky loans inside a bunch of good loans and hoping nobody sees the bad loans. But they would be trading it among themselves in an overheated market. Um, so what happens is, is that eventually all that low-hanging fruit, the good loans start to evaporate it, and all you got left is junk. And then you try to sell the junk at next to nothing, and then there's too many junks out there. And so what he's just talking about leverage loan market is these loan obligations, because you're, 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 when you do that, when you securitize, you may only give that bank 99% of that loan. You're not, you might not pay par for it because you want to make money on the fringe. You want to make money on the, on the margin. So, you know, if I'm going to collateralize a bunch of loans, I'm not going to pay those banks 100% on that loan because I'm not really going to get all that. You know, I'm not, I, I need to know that I'm going to pay a little less. So when those loans start to pay off, I, as the investment bank, can make money. And the investor who's buying that little piece of that bond, they'll still make money too. Um, so that's what he's talking about, leveraged loan market overheating. It's like he sees a bunch of tradable L CLOs or CDOs on that market moving quickly. And it's the same kind of vortex that started the issues in 0809. Got it. But I think our banks are pretty good about how to underwrite a loan now. And they've figured out not to make wacky structures. So I think our MBS and MBO structure is more secure than maybe these internationals, CLOs, CDOs. I've never invested in a CLO or CDO in my life as a banker. I have invested in MBSs and MBOs. Um, all the time. Um, and they're pretty good investments. And the reason banks invest in those is because they don't have enough loans to give out. They have a lot of cash, but they got to put it to work. Because my understanding, you know, you just mentioned, right, like banks had a, have a lot of cash and they want to put it to work. And like my understanding that one of the issues that led to the subprime, you know, crisis of 2008 was that obviously they were giving loans to people that couldn't afford, you know, those loans with variable interest right. rates, right? And the interest rates mm -hmm. started to rise. And then the, you know, the payments were getting out of hand. So people were like defaulting on the loans and it became a, you know, a, a chain of events. Um, mm -hmm. And um, I mean, my, my comment is about, or my question to you is, my understanding too is that, you know, in the last 30 to 40 years, uh, the real income, you know, of the average household has been, you know, it's extinguished, you know? And so the only way to get, kind of like, you know, income, you know, in a substantial way is to, you know, take a, 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 a get on, get a house or a couple of houses, you know, in hope for perpetual, perpetual growth in the value of those houses. And that's what collapsed in 2008. Yes, they, you know, like I said a few minutes ago, they uh, talked about, I talked about the appraisal side of the coin. You know, banks were underwriting and making structures of loans that were just insane it got people into bigger homes that they really couldn't afford and like like you said an, an adjustable rate mortgage 
you know, the introductory rate for the first five years is say two and a half percent. Well, that gets you into a really big house. But at the end of that, guess what they get to do? Adjust the rate. And then you can't afford the home. Um, you know, I think what we got to really realize is that um, banks as a whole um, weren't doing things right. They weren't the credit standards and the appraisals were the biggest issue there where everything started to collapse was banks are estimating that this house is worth say $500,000. And I'm giving you a loan based on that $500,000 valuation. Well, if the appraiser is really not doing their job thoroughly enough and say, you know, because we as bankers, we have to reevaluate our appraisals every three years. So we're going to go out two or three years out from now and reappraise that property and make sure it's still worth what we say it was worth. And if the price comes down, say it's now only worth $300,000, but I have a $400,000 mortgage on it, I have to write down, I have to write off a hundred grand to keep my book in line. I can't have the valuation up here and the loans behind it down here. I have to or if I have the loan above the mortgage, if I have the loan above the value, I have to bring the value of the loan down. Now, it doesn't mean I'm paying off and letting that customer pay less on the accounting side of the coin. I'm bringing the value of my loan in line with the value of the collateral. Um, and that is another thing that really perpetuated 08 to 012 or 010 rather, um, the valuations of banks and the valuations of the, of the securities valuations of the collaterals against the loans. And so you have a bunch of write-offs and what we call write-downs. We're not writing off or we're not getting the loan away. We're not telling the customer, you don't have to pay us anymore. You still owe us 400 grand, but because it's only worth 300 on paper, I have to bring the value of that loan down that I only now have a a loan worth $300,000. But I have to take that hit to my bottom line straight up. Now, I each month do a, an allowance for loan losses, what we call now um, uh, the allowance for credit losses. It used to be called ALLL, now it's called ACL. Um, allowance, uh, allowance for credit loss, we have to now set that some money aside. We've been doing that all along, but weren't setting enough of it aside in 0809. So I'm accruing a, like a pool of cash to the left the figurative left, not the political left. <laughs> I'm putting aside a bunch of cash. So when these loans go south, I just say, well, I accrued that loss. I'm going to bring it over. I accrued that loss. I'm going to bring it over. So I have a like a bank of money off to the left that I can just pull money into. And when I write off that loan, it lowers my allowances that I've accrued. Problem was, if I wasn't accruing enough and the losses went above that amount of money, now I'm really screwed. Because now I have to take bottom line hits right out of the gate. Yeah. Do you think, Rob, then that, you know, this, uh, this claim, you know, there was a validity to what was happening? You know, what, what this article is? Um... I, think there's, I think there's some to it. Yeah. I think there could be some uh, definite uh, tremors that he's talking about here. Because remember, when he goes back to the original opening line, he goes, the pressure was building up. He's not necessarily saying there was a collapse occurred in June of 2019. He's saying there's pressure, there's warning signs, alarm bells going off that we could be headed down some of these same roads. 
that we were back in 08. And I, I only take the only thing I take issue with in that in that 20 June 2019 is a subprime crisis. It was just a loan crisis because subprimes, you know, you're getting into bed with somebody who probably can't pay. You know, you're getting into bed with somebody with a bad credit score, a bankruptcy, something you know. But you're going to compensate yourself and offset that risk by getting a, a interest rate that's sky high. You're not going to give a subprime person a three percent mortgage. You're going to give them a nine percent mortgage, or not lend to them at all. But you should be able to take those subprime loans and put them into a bundle or a security that says this is all subprime. And then people recognize the risk that they're taking. It's kind of like junk bonds from the '80s. You know, a junk bond is a bond that you you're basically gambling if you buy it. Um, you don't have any intention that you might get paid back. You hope you do. And if you do, great, you'll make a lot of money. But if you don't, you just lose the money. You just got to go into it eyes wide open. The problem was, is they were taking subprime loans and sticking in these CLOs, CDOs, MBS, and uh, um, CBSs and saying they're just as good as any other loan. And they weren't. And just to be clear, though, and in this, in June 2019, he's not speaking about just subprime. He's just talking about loans out there in oh, general. Yeah talking about them as all sort of not being able mm-hmm. to pay back collectively, maybe even internationally. Well, he was talking about the subprime crisis and he has bracketed 08. Okay. I'm saying 08 was not just subprime loans. It was all loans. Okay. Gotcha. <laughs> I, you know, Rob, you've stated before in previous episodes that you've voted Republican. And one of the reasons why, um, I know my friend Jake and some other friends are Republican. It's because they believe in an unregulated economy where big big government is not interfering with the economy in in the way that capitalism should, as ideally, would be running. That's what some friends have told me. That is what they mm-hmm. vote Republican. Um, I have a question for how conservatives or the right or anywhere on that side of the right um, – how do they see how the economy can be unregulated if there are so many collapses? I mean, Democrats themselves are as well. They are capitalists, right? Like Nancy Pelosi has stated mm-hmm. before, like this is a capitalist country. There's no denying that. And this is, it, it's just Democrats, and but there might be differences in how they see the economy functioning. How do collapses according to um, capitalists or economists that want to function in this sort of society see the economy function without a collapse. It seems to me that this is bound to happen in the framework that we are li- in the way that we are living in the way this is structured. And I know that there, there, there is talk about restructuring the way the economy is, but still there seems to be, you know, from the great depression, 2008, it just, all of these collapses, I don't understand how it's sustainable. Well, I think one thing when we get into growth patterns or growth areas in the in the years since 1929, like if you take the 80s and I mean, frankly, you know, GW, uh, George H.W. Bush probably shouldn't have lost in 92 because he really he had like a one. He had the mildest recession of recessions in the history of recessions. It was literally one quarter. It came at a bad time for him politically. Um, and then you have Perot coming in, but that that's getting a, f- a far foot here. But when you look at growth 
periods in this in this country in the United States, you always have a business cycle. You always have a down, and something impacts it systemically, like huge. Like in the seventies, it was all oil based. You know, we were having oil crises every two or three years. Um, you know, and then it became well. Where you know you had other crises that just made people feel a malaise uh, throughout the seventies. You had you know Nixon resigning. You had Carter not really be, being able to manage much of anything because there was a lot of people against him in in the in the government. Um, they didn't really like his populist point of view. But um, the seventies was a malaise, and then the eighties comes, and you think it's like taking off like a rocket. Well, remember that rocket didn't start taking off to like mid 1983. So Reagan for his first two years battled a, a double dip recession. Um, but you're getting to your point of how can we keep having collapses and keep having, you know, we had a SNL crisis in the late eighties, early nineties. Um, we learned our lesson and we quote fixed it. You had Enron and everything at the end of nineties and into the early two thousands, you know, and then we got um, Sarb you got the Sarbanes-Oxley Act come out. Like we're going to have people accountable when they sign financial statements. Why the f, f didn't you have that before? You would think you're the CEO, but again, they let people bail themselves out, and no one, no one really got too up in the people's faces about it. It's like, okay, we got a new law now. Let's move on to the next thing. Um, you had Clinton strip out Glass-Steagall Act, like I said earlier. And then, you know, the housing market takes off like a rocket. Everybody's getting mortgages and people are buying multiple homes. I'll say this for everyone about that mortgage crisis in 08. You need to see a movie called The Big Short. Mm -hmm. um, it has um, Steve Carell and Christian Bale. It's a, it's a great film and it explains how that whole process came to be between securitized mortgages and all of it. But to get to your point of why do we keep having collapses and how can that, how's that a sustainable model? Um, it's not sustainable. Um, I don't come to capitalism thinking that it should be unfettered and unregulated and let everything just take their course. You know, the, the, the Adam Smith school of economics where this invisible hand of God, I guess, uh, will, uh, will, will make people will do the right thing, you know, in their soul, they'll do the right thing. Well, let's look at Love Canal. Let's look at you know any other major environmental crisis um, or poisoning. Let's look at uh, you know um, textile mills and such. You know, going up in flames and govern. You know, let's look at the Ford Pinto. You know, they did a, a cost-benefit analysis on death claims. How is that a, a viable way for businesses to act? It's not. Um, so from my vantage point, as coming in from a capitalist point of view, but not like let's unfetter it, let's let them just run wild like wild horses and hope we don't have a, you know, a stampede is just idiotic. So you do have to have some regulations. I mean, we didn't get to, this, I mean, talk about climate control and climate crisis you know, our country has gotten to better water and air qualities than we've seen ever. How do we get there? Regulation. Um, you know, taxation is another way to control things. Um, but I do think there has to be some hand of something because I don't think people, 
think people get greedy. And I think where it comes down to, why do we have collapses? Greed. Um, why does it continue to happen? Well, somehow, some way, there's a loophole. Somebody sees it and starts running through it. And then a bunch of other people look at it and go, look at that loophole. Let's go for it. And then they get in there and they find out that, you know, it's going to drag something down and they lose their shirts and they look to the government to try to help, you know, and sometimes the government does step up and prop their industry up. Maybe they don't need to. Maybe they should just die on the vine, you know. Um, why? So for me, uh, Eduardo, I think that it's not a sustainable model, but I think as long as there's. Uh, as long as the deck is, or as long as the cards are being dealt that allow people to feed into their own greeds, there'll be future collapses of some kind. Maybe not to the extent we saw in 08 to 010. Um, that was damn near depression level. If you look at the numbers um, against the 1929, um, yeah, it was close to being a depression, but we pumped it up with enough money. Uh, the one thing I will say about that is, well, why didn't we pump up a ton of money? Why couldn't we just spend our way out of the Great Depression? We had the gold standard back in those years. And so you can only print as much money as gold and the, and the value of that gold would allow. Um, Nixon took us off the gold standard in like 71 or 72. And so that allowed money to just go wild, frankly, money supply to just increase exponentially. Um, you know, think about it this way. In 1960, if you made $10,000 a year, you were very wealthy. But then again, prices were relative to that, to that wage as well. But there was a finite amount of cash. We can only print, say, $3 trillion. That's it. That's, that's the economy. Today, you, you have an economy of $25 trillion. How's that possible? Well, you can print as much money as you need to, um, you know, and you don't have a gold standard to, to hold your money supply in place. Money supply has changed differently now. But I think in the long run, you know, we are have an opportunity to hopefully uh, retool capitalism a bit, not a bit, probably a lot, to avoid a huge collapse in the future. There'll be sectors that have small collapses. Hopefully these collapses in the future will be smaller and less permeated and less affected to everyone, uh, you know, in, in, the, in a country. But I don't come at capitalism with this grandiose view that you can just let it go unfettered. You got to have some regulation um, and you also have to have some level of taxation, too. All right. So the next um, date is... Uh... August 9th to 2019, um, the BIS issues a working paper calling for unconventional monetary policy measures to insulate the real economy from further deterioration in financial conditions. The paper indicates that by offering direct credit to the economy during a crisis, central bank lending can replace commercial banks in providing loans to firms. I'm curious to what the real economy is or what he might mean by that. Hmm. That's one that's got me a little puzzled, but I could tell you what they're talking about, direct credit to the economy and how they can bypass commercial banks and provide loans to firms. Um, basically, they're just putting up 
you know, talking about unconventional monetary measures, basically printing money. And how do we get that money directly into the hands of people um, or businesses? Um, and that's what they're saying about replacing commercial banks to provide loans to firms. I think the SBA, the Small Business Association, uh, with their Paycheck Protection Loans, Paycheck Protection Program Loans, PPP, is a direct example of what you're talking about here. You know, banks didn't make those loans for PPP. I did a lot of them. I mean, I did between 2020 and 2021's version of PPP. We probably lent close to $5 million. Now, the only thing we needed to show to get that loan was to get the customer, get the business to show me their payroll records. And we did a derivative number of dollars of payroll, like two and a half times their payroll across a you know, like a eight week period or a 10, 12 week period. So we took that multiple, you know, no, it's average of 12 months. And then we multiply that each month. So like if you have 12 months worth of payroll, we put your average monthly payroll and then we multiply by 2.5 and there's your loan. And we would just give you the money. We didn't like look at your, your look at your business to see if you have a problem or you're managing your business properly or kicking the tires. The SBA said they're approved, give them the money. They're saying, you know, sign these documents, and if we need anything else, we'll ask for it. Otherwise, you're forgiven, and then they give the bank back the money the bank gave to that customer. So the the government is printing money and giving it to the bank to pay that loan in full because the bank had to give the money to the customer, not the SBA for those PPPs. The SBA was just overseeing the process. We would approve the loan with them. They would say, give them the money. And then now a year later, here's your money back, the bank, plus interest. But here's the kicker. Um, banks were making, say, an average of 4% per loan, regardless of loan amount. Um, so I, our bank, a little community bank, little $100 million bank, um, we've made... In the five million we've lent, we've probably made close to $350,000. That's a huge amount of money for a $100 million bank. Huge amount of money. So what they're talking about is providing loans to firms, replacing a commercial bank. And they're also talking about direct credit to the economy, which means direct money directly to an individual. And, and they're calling they're calling for people to be ready for unconventional monetary policy. Right. And that's what I was going to ask about. What do they mean by what's unconventional about it? Is your soup is you're going around the bank? No, uh, a little bit. Um, but uh, but go, let's go back to what monetary policy truly is. Monetary policy from the Fed's point of view is handling interest rates, the buying and selling of bonds is primarily what they do. So what the bank, what, what what the Fed does is they say the overnight rate, this is the rate that they'll charge a bank to put money into the Fed. Like if we have extra cash and we're not loaning it and we're not putting it in an investment, we'll put it to the Fed for overnight funds and we'll get paid a very small percentage, like 0.25%. Right now it's at zero or damn close to it. Um, so you have them taking that interest rate and dropping it almost to zero. So from there, you start to build the other interest rate models. So you have 
the U.S. Treasury, the 10-year Treasury is like 1.65 or something like that. So between the overnight rate that the Fed charges or gives you as a, as a bank and the treasury rate, which is the safest rate because you're buying a treasury bond, say at 10 years, five years, 30 years. And then you have the loan rates that we charge customers to get lending. So it goes up from there. So you start with the overnight rate. As long as that starts going up, then your treasury rates go up, then your mortgage rates go up, and then your consumer rates start to go up. But if you keep those rates low, they don't have a whole lot of room to move. So if you look at like what they call the yield curve, right now a three month a three month treasury note might be I'm just off the top of my head I'll say point say it's 0.05 percent that's less than one percent 0.05 percent not five percent so you go to the three year treasury and maybe that jumps up to 0.5 percent and then you go out to the ten year and you're at 1.6. But you don't have a whole lot of spread. That means you're going to take a 10 years to pay you back on that treasury note. You're only going to get 1.6%. It's not a lot of money when you're talking about an investment over a 10-year horizon. That's nothing. That's free money, basically. Um, so what, I, what I'm getting back to is when you can manipulate the, the, the interest rates, the monetary policy is how they used to cool the economy in the past. You know, back when Alan Greenspan was the Fed chair in the 90s, you know, if the economy got too hot, what would they do? They'd raise interest rates, make it more difficult for businesses to expand. Economy would contract a little. If the economy wasn't doing good enough, they would lower interest rates, get businesses to start leveraging or customers to start spending money. Because if you park it and you're not making anything, you want to spend it or you want to put it in something else to make more money. So they would lower interest rates to get the economy going again. So that's one way they do it. The other way they do it is handle on the monetary policy is money supply. So how do they get money into the economy? Well, they do that by buying bonds. So the federal government issues a bond. Federal Reserve is going to buy that bond, right? So the Federal Reserve prints money, goes to the federal government, buys that bond. Money is now in the economy. It's in the hands of the government, but it's going to get out there and spent in some way. Now, if they want to contract the economy and pull money out of the economy, they would go out and sell bonds. So I have a bond. I'm the Federal Reserve. I want to sell that and get my money back. So if they sell that, they're going to pull money out of the economy and shrink the economy in that capacity. So those are the two primary tools of monetary policy. Manipulating interest rates and shrinking or growing the economy through bonds. The difference is, is the the Federal Reserve Bank has now blown their balance sheet up, and it's not just bonds that are in there. It's municipal bonds, corporate bonds, and repurchase orders that I think they get into a little bit later in this article. Those are three key things. Banks back in around November of last of 2019 were not paying each other doing repo orders. A repo order is you lend me money overnight for a day or two, and you, I'll, I'll, I'll sell you this instrument, this debt instrument. I'm going to basically take a loan from your bank. I'll pay you back three days later with some interest. 
That's a repurchase order, basically. Then you had municipal bond market and the corporate bond market were not getting any liquidity. There weren't people investing in them. So the Federal Reserve comes in and says, if it's what we call investment grade, very solid AAA rated bonds, we'll buy them and give you the money and we'll have that on our machine. So again, they're pushing money into the economy. So you have those types of things now on their balance sheet. Now you have bond, treasury bonds on their balance sheet. So their balance sheet is now, remember back in 08, 09, it was $4 trillion. Now it's close to $8 trillion. Now let's put that in context. For every dollar that's printed in circulation, it creates about 6 to $8 in the economy. How does that happen? Okay, I get a dollar and I go out and buy a hamburger. Well, that business now puts that in their till and they pay somebody for that, making that hamburger, or they take some profit and they invest that profit. And the person who got paid goes out and buys something else. Well, each one of those transactions, that same $1 is moving through the economy. And so that's where you get a multiplier effect. And so when they're printing money and putting money into the economy, it's making more things happen in the economy. When I remember I talked about patching those holes where money used to be earned, if they can plug that hole and money doesn't get earned on top of printing money, you won't have any inflation because that money was supposed to be earned, right? Now that money is plugged into the economy. Well, it has to move through the economy to get that multiplier effect. But if you keep printing money and plugging in uh, stimulus, you know, we did a stimulus in December of 20. And then we did another stimulus in February, March of 2021. There was no time for anything to get through the economy. So you have all this money in circulation, not enough goods to go chase it. What happens? Inflation occurs. And then add to that an economy that starts to go in a V-shaped recovery. Everybody goes back to work in a three-month period, practically. And now they're earning money. Well, before they weren't earning money, that plug was there to plug that hole in the economy. Now they're earning money on top of the money in circulation. It's a perfect storm um, of potential inflation or hyperinflation. When they're talking about unconventional monetary policy, that's what they're talking about. Okay. They're talking about getting more money into the economy as quickly as possible. How do we do that and not involve necessarily commercial banks to lend money because we Low, we, we lowered interest rates or we rose interest rates for them to feel incentivized to lend it out. We want to get that money into people's hands. How do we do it? That's what I'm talking about, what unconventional. So we took conventional monetary policy and now that's out the window. We're not talking about just doing it for moving the, the shrinking the, the money supply or moving the interest rates. Now we're just going to push it into the economy, all that goes out the window because we're not trying to heat the economy or cool the economy. We're just trying to keep it moving. Mm. That's what we're talking about. Is that is so that's where like the stimulus that you know everyone basically got came into mm -hmm. to play, right? Um to get yes. money out there in the in the economy. And then to, to get money in there, yep, exactly. But so what they also did real quick was you know they said okay if you're gonna stay in your homes and you're not gonna be able to earn your 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 money you know, you're not going to be able to pay your mortgage or your rent. So we're going to put those on hiatus and we're going to put student loans on hiatus. And we're going to put all these loans on hiatus so you don't have that worry about 
paying those payments. So the money we're giving you, you should be able to sustain your life. No one can kick you out of your house. You're good to go. You know, that's how they thought about it. I was wondering if there's also a connection to um, the money that they're trying to put in as this unconventional monetary policy of putting money into it. Is that also connected to, to loans getting paid off because of the problem that was de- identified in June? I don't, I think they're two unrelated things. I think what he's saying here in August of 19 is, you know, the paper was get putting the word out, you know, as this is occurring from their perspective in June, they're getting the word out, like, we better be ready to do some unconventional things. If okay. This is going to happen again. Okay. Is what he's saying in August. Got it. You know, we are consumers and, you know, there there is inflation. You know, it's coming. It's here. Like, it's not, it's not coming. Oh, it's here. It's here. And, you know, um, so this is a direct result of that, right? Like that uh, strategy, I imagine. Mm-hmm. Yes. They put too much money into the economy and then, then, for lack of a better word, allow people to go back to work, to reopen the economy, right? So that money that they plugged in through stimulus in December and March of 20 and March of 2021 was there to plug that hole. People weren't earning the money, so they need, they need to get money to people, right? Well, once they start opening the economy in April of this year in June and you know, the economy soared back in the second quarter because everybody started to go back to work. Those same people that got the stimulus started to earn money again. Do they, do they need the stimulus because they were going to start to get the job back? Well, now they got both. Now you got a lot of cash on hand and now you got to go out and buy stuff. Well, remember when we shut down the economy in 20 completely, basically, those supply chains underneath that, that creates the the raw materials that go to create the product that gets on the shelf, they also shut down because it's like, well, big store can't, you know, we can't, the manufacturer can't make the finished product. So we're not going to be able to ship as much or buy as much raw material. And so that's where you get disruptions with going into cars and why the new car market, you know, look at car dealerships. They don't have a lot of inventory because they can't get cars built fast enough because they don't get chips. Well, the cost of those cars go up. The cost of used cars goes skyrocketing. Um, Same thing in the housing market. People want to get out there now and start buying a house. Well, you know, I'll be frank about the inventory of homes. Unless you want to buy a fixer upper or unless you want to be in a really big McMansion, there is no middle ground right now in the housing market. You either have to build a house, buy a fixer upper, buy a big house, you know, and what's happening is because there's not a lot of supply and a lot of demand, prices go up, meaning the appraisers are now saying, well, that house is now worth this because this other house down the street sold for the same amount of money and they're the same general house. We're going to fund, we're going to make this house the same value as this house and everything starts moving up. So, you know, it creates a inflationary effect. Hopefully it's going to be once those supply chains get back up to full speed, and finished product gets out on the shelves or gets into the parking lots at the same rate as demand, prices will stabilize. But right now, they're up. How long it stays there, I think, might be till middle of next year. I think we can move on to the next paragraph. The 15th of August, 2019, um, BlackRock Incorporated 
the world's most powerful investment fund, managing around $7 trillion in stock and bond funds, issues a white paper titled Dealing with the Next Downturn. Essentially, the paper instructs the U.S. Federal Reserve to inject liquidity, liquidity directly into the financial system to prevent a dramatic downturn. Again, the message is unequivocal. An unprecedented response is needed when, a mo when monetary policy is exhausted and fiscal policy alone is not, it's not enough. That response will likely involve going direct, finding ways to get central bank money directly into the hands of public and private sector spend spenders while avoiding hyperinflation. Examples include the Weimar Republic in the 1920s, as well as Argentina and Zimbabwe more recently. And it sounds yeah. a lot like yeah. what he's been, what Robert's been saying about the need of the Federal Reserve to go to, to act directly to get money into the system, not for, you know, buying bonds or selling bonds or raising interest rates or lowering interest rates, but this unconventional policy of needing to get money directly in because of what uh, they're concerned about some sort of uh, downturn. And how do they avoid hyperinflation? I kind of covered that in the last points that I was making was when they're, when they're printing stimulus money, whether that was in through the 30s when they're trying to get the Tennessee Valley Authority to get jobs back online or whether that's now with, with stimulus, if you're going to print stimulus money and get it out into people's hands, you can't really have earners on top of that. You you're plugging a hole. It's like this COVID blew a hole in the economy. Well, actually, we made this hole in the economy because we shut ourselves down when we didn't really need to. But let's just say the difference between now and 08 and 010 is nothing systemically, at least on the surface, was problematic. We didn't have bad loans. We didn't have industries failing. Nothing was really failing when we started to shut down. But in 08, 010, everything fell, and then we started to plug the hole. Well, that plug the hole of stimulus money has to get puttied in there, right? It has to fill the gap where people used to earn money. Now the money is in their hand without having to earn it, right? Well, to avoid hyperinflation, you have to have time for that money to move through the economy. Remember that six to eight multiplier? Well, that takes a good six to nine months to move through the economy, maybe a couple of years to fully have its effect be found. Because slowly people go back to work, right? When you have a, a complete downturn, it's a gradual rebuild of employment. It's not a V. It's not like lose employment, back employed, you know, seven, eight months later. It's four or five years worth of people getting back on their feet. It took a long time for interest rates to start rising from 010 to almost 017. It took a long time because it was a gradual build of people retooling themselves for a new economy, retooling themselves for new jobs, getting into new jobs, et cetera. So that plug mm -hmm. that we did back in 08 to 010 of 4 trillion took almost a decade to get through the economy because people were slowly getting back to work slowly recovering from, a, from an economy or from a sector of the economy that let them down. Here, we shut ourselves down, we blew a hole in our economy, we plug it with stimulus money. But at the end of the day, 
we then reopen the economy just as quickly as we put the stimulus money in, people start earning money again very quickly, not seven to 10 years out, seven to 10 months out. And that money coming in along with the stimulus on the top creates this mountain of cash. Then you have all these few goods down here. Well, there's only one thing, few goods and more money create higher prices. And that's how we get to hyperinflation. We're probably not going to see hyperinflation, but for our point of view, you know, the inflation we're seeing is quite considerable. It's the highest inflation since probably the beginning of the Obama uh, administration. Well, and just to say, I mean, I think Rob, Rob was getting at the point. What was he saying? Um, before the thing kind of collapsed and then they had to go in and like intervene far prior towards like th before these dominoes went too far. It seems like in this situation, this guy's saying they saw another 2008 coming and they wanted to head it off at the pass so they didn't have to deal with the political blowback for the new round of stimulus that was going to come in. Um, that's kind of how I, how I read that. That's how I interpret it too. Yeah. All right. So let's go to August 22nd to 24th. G7 central bankers meet in Jackson Hole, Wyoming to discuss BlackRock's paper, the one mentioned before along with urgent measures to prevent the looming meltdown. In prescient words of James Bullard, president of the St. Louis Federal Reserve's uh, says, quote, we just have to stop thinking that next year things are going to be normal. He's just saying that if these, if in the G7, if these headwinds continue, next year's going to be a problem. When you look at the timing of when you have downturns or like Eduardo was saying about um, collapses, they're usually about every seven to 15 years. They're usually happen in that window. If you look at it, you know, you had the SNL crisis in the late eighties, early nineties. And then we sail through the nineties. Then you get nine 11 and you have its uh, recession. And then it goes back up. And then you have about eight or nine years out, you have the collapse of the business of the banking and the, and the uh, auto industry. And then here we're now about 10, 12 years out and we have this collapse. So if you look at it, the timing is right where it should be, basically. And just to say that it seems like what he's indicating is that the like by mentioning the G7 central bankers, he's indicating that the sense of a looming problem is developing throughout more sectors of the, the world, global capital. Yes. So this is uh, exactly two years ago, uh, September 15th to the 16th, uh, 2019. The downturn is officially in inaugurated by a sudden spike in the repo rates from 2% to 10.5%. Repo is shorthand for repurchase agreement. A contract with the investment funds lend money against collateral assets, normally tre treasury securities. At the time of the exchange, financial operators, banks, undertake to buy back the assets at a higher price, typically overnight. In brief, repos are short-term collateralized loans. They are the main source of funding for traders in most markets, especially the derivatives galaxy. A lack of liquidity in the repo market can have a devastating domino effect on all major financial sectors. So right. maybe uh, if you wanna talk about the repo uh, repurchase agreement, um, why that is important, you know, and why two, two to five, two to ten point five percent change? What does that, you know, indicate? 
Well, it indicates that whatever reason, you know, usually these are between banks. Um, you know, I'm holding treasury securities as part of my asset base. I need some overnight capital um, because maybe I want to make another investment or I want to, I have to make a margin call, uh, like a reserve call, because there's so much reserves you have to keep on your bank um, from your deposits. You can't lend every dime out the door. You have to have some cash on hand. Um, so a repo purchase agreement would say, I need this overnight because I'm going to dip below my threshold and um, I'll put this up and I'll buy it back from you four days from now or three days from now or overnight. Um, so what happened is, is that in this period, basically other banks weren't trusting other banks. So you got an interest rate that went from a normal 2% to 10.5. And that's insane number right there. So you're going to pay somebody 10.5% for an overnight. Now that might, maybe he doesn't specify it here, but maybe that's an annualized rate. But um, still, even if you're paying the equivalent of a daily rate at 10.5 annually, that's still very expensive money. Um, and you can't do that forever by any stretch. But basically, in, what he's saying here is banks weren't trusting other banks with repurchase agreements. So if I'm bank A and I'm going to Eduardo's bank and I'm saying, I'm going to sell you this. Eduardo's saying, hmm, I don't know about your bank. Um, I need some. I need some extra interest uh, to offset the risk that I think you're posing to me. So I think you're risky. And so he's going to charge 10.5 annual or even 10 point. If it's 10.5 overnight, that's, that, that's like hell of a uh, loan shark can do better for you if you wanted to. But <laughs> so 10.5, Eduardo looks at me saying, yeah, you're going to buy it back in three days, but I'm not giving you 2% as my rate. I don't, think your bank is going to buy it back. I think I'm going to be stuck with this thing. So I'm going to charge you 10 and a half. So that's what was happening there. So what happened is the Fed had to come in and create, be the liquidity source for repos to keep that interest rate down and to maintain liquidity in the repo market. Because if I'm doing, re everybody's doing repos left and right. Okay. Um, and there could be a float of, say, a trillion, two trillion dollars out there in repos on any given day. Well, if all of a sudden all those banks that decided that they were going to sell it don't decide to buy it back, you can have things collapse. Hmm. So the Fed had to step in at that point and become the liquidity source for repurchase agreements. That's what they're talking about. And a lack of liquidity in the repo market can be devastating because, again, all these banks are trading repos back and forth throughout the economy. Again, you can have trillion, maybe more than $2 trillion in a float in a given day. And if all of that decides we're not buying it back, and that bank who took your, you know, gave you the, the, the treasury note and you got, they, you got cash out of your bank, you might now be at risk because you're now having a liquidity issue because you can't get cash back for that repurchase agreement because everybody defaulted at the same time. And so the Fed comes in and becomes the liquidity source, kind of like how Freddie and Fannie do it for mortgages. You know, some banks love to sell their mortgages on the secondary market all the time and make fees on that from Freddie and Fannie. And they never really keep anything on their books, but they churn and burn their, their, their liquidity all the time. They make a nice money on that. 
But if Freddie and Fannie stopped working, which they did in 08, 09 as well, um, <laughs> magic, all these things can't have come to fruition at one time in 08, 09. Freddie and Fannie were having a problem. They weren't able to maintain liquidity for the mortgage market. So that became a problem on top of all the other things that were happening. Um, so the Fed had to step in here as the repo liquidity source. So to keep things liquid to keep cash moving. So that's what they were doing. So I was just saying exactly two years from now, then this is exactly as it says officially, the downturn is officially inaugurated. So this is exactly the the genesis of this beginning, this this collapse then. Mm-hmm. Is yeah. is the repo issue connected to the that earth early issue where they're worried about people paying off their loans? Is that is the is the lack of tr- banks trusting each other connected to the to the it, it problem? Could be. It could be. I think some of it is just the repo market. They didn't see it as a viable uh, investment product for them. So they were going to charge an exorbitant rate. And that makes banks who need the repo to sell to somebody hold back and say, well, I guess I'll just not do that. But I don't have a place to go. And then the Fed has to step in. And they talk about it here on the 17th of September 2019. The Fed begins the emergency monetary program, pumping hundreds of billions of dollars per week into Wall Street effectively executing BlackRock's Go Direct plan. Unsurprisingly, in March of 2020, the Fed will hire BlackRock to manage the bailout package in response to the COVID-19 crisis. So they're talking about here, pumping that money into the repo market. And that's what they started doing. And do you make anything about this thing? Unsurprisingly, they uh, hire BlackRock to manage the bailout package in response to the COVID-19 crisis. No, it doesn't surprise me. <laughs> They're all in cahoots. <laughs> They're all kind of, you know, they they all know each other and they know, well, like it's like BlackRock. You got to think of BlackRock like Halliburton. You know, Halliburton is such a huge company when they started to rebuild uh, Iraq. You know, you need a company with the scale to do it. You can't just hire, you know, a hundred million dollar community bank to help the Fed <laughs> manage a bailout package. So. This is the biggest, one of the biggest companies out there that can handle this type of situation and have the scale to do it effectively. Yeah, I don't see, I, I mean, it was it just, it's, it's an, it becomes a, what they consider a natural fit. Doesn't mean they put it out for bid or anything like that. Or, you know, 15 companies and BlackRock magically got picked. I just think it was just, they were picked. Right. Yeah, I do have a question. So, of course, you know, BlackRock is like, you know, a big player in the market, like, but obviously they have a stake in making sure this doesn't devolve into a crisis. Um, but what is, do they put any money, you know, like in, in fixing this issue? Like, or, or, or is it just advice that they're giving on how to handle, you know, like the markets because they have a big reach into different markets? I um, don't think they're putting money into it. I think they're just putting infrastructure on like in advice and counsel, I think is what they're doing there. I don't think they're putting the skin in the game. All right. Like, so what I was saying um, is up until now, what basically this, so yeah, so Fabio Vigi has been essentially laying out a case of a growing concern in various sectors, politically and economically about the state of the global economy. And now here we are, September 19th. Um, 
Donald Trump signs Executive Order 13887, establishing a national influenza vaccine task force whose aim is to develop a five-year national plan to promote the use of more agile and scalable vaccine manufacturing technologies and to accelerate development of vaccines that protect against many of many or all influenza viruses. This is to counteract, quote, an influenza pandemic, which unlike seasonal influenza has the potential to spread rapidly around the globe, infect higher numbers of people and cause high rates of illness and death in populations that lack prior immunity. As someone guessed, and if you go to this thing, you'll see somebody who actually talked about in, back in September of 2019, a person who was basically saying vaccine mandates are coming. You know, this is a very interesting video if you ever click on it. Um, the pandemic was imminent while in Europe, too, preparations were underway. I don't know if you all clicked on that video, though, but it's pretty crazy. This woman basically heard about this and basically was talking into the into her video camera, basically saying in one year we're going to be having, you know, vaccine. They're going to be putting that mandating vaccines into adults. It's, it's kind of fortuitous how she comes out onto this into this video and it's just like how does someone figure it out a year and a half before or a year to the day basically um what they were going to do i think it's actually two years yeah, oh, yeah two years to the day yeah. yeah two years it's pretty crazy um okay so anybody want to go to the next one october 18th october 18 2019 in new york uh global is simulated during event 201, a strategic exercise coordinated by John Hopkins Biosecurity Center in the Bill Gates in the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what comes up for me is like people often make like they make fun of people who go, "Oh, event 201, they were planning it and things like that." But honestly, when you lay when you lay out if you lay out the economic backdrop to this, it makes a lot more sense out of what people have been saying that Event 201 was truly a kind of a discussion place for the ruling class to talk about how could we lay out a pandemic. It makes more sense that such an event would take place when you see that it also comes one month on the heels of an executive order by Donald Trump, some somebody who everyone thought was like the guy who was against uh, Fauci, the guy who was against um, imposing vaccine mandates, who himself also was the author of Operation Warp Speed. It really shows that there is a, a full scale, like everyone's on board on this in the United States, not the, just Democrats and Republicans, Trump on one side and Nancy Pelosi on the other. Uh, or este, so the 21st to the 24th of January of 2020, the World Economic Forum's annual meeting takes place in Davos, Switzerland, where both the economy and vaccinations are discussed. We've discussed the World Economic Forum here before, quite famous. <laughs> but, and I'll just finish the last two. I think we can discuss them together. Um, the 23rd of January, 2020, China put Wuhan and other cities of Hubei province in lockdown. And the 11th of March, 2020, the Hu's, uh Director General calls COVID-19 a pandemic. The rest is history. Uh, well, I think these dates to me, I mean, I was in France during January and 
it just seemed that that time when I was hearing whispers of anything like this being discussed, it just seemed sort just unrealistic. That's like, oh well, or maybe something. It's like it's the SARS epidemic or something of the flu. You know, the the, the swine flu and all that. And and then all of a sudden you start hearing about Wuhan and the Hubei province being in lockdown. And then you see the Guardian putting up videos of what that was like. And you think, oh, of course, China would do something so draconian, right? And and then you hear US American media just sort of going after it. Like, of course they have to do something draconian. They are responsible for it, you know? And I mean, I'll stop there. So here's what I think. And I'm gonna read this part, Robert. Maybe you can tell me what you think. So what does he do? He says, joining the dots is simple enough exercise. If we do so, we might if we do so, we might see a well-defined narrative outline emerge, whose succinct summary reads as follows. Lockdowns and the global suspension of economic transactions were intended to, number one, allow the Fed to flood the ailing financial markets with freshly printed money while deferring hyperinflation. I think you've actually talked about that. And number two, introduce max vac- mass vaccination programs and health passports as pillars of a neo-feudal regime of capitalist accumulation. This part we haven't talked as much about, and I really would be curious what you make of number two. Um, but you, I do believe you've spoken to number one on this. If you want to say more about it, but I'd be curious what you if what you make of number two that he says here. Yeah, I would. I mean, we talked at at length about you know the Fed flooding the ailing financial markets. You know, well they were ail- they they were may, they may have had tremors, like he points out through the timeline. But when we shut down the economy, it's like you created a, a situation where, and people went along with it because it's like, okay, we're shutting down the economy. Well, the Fed has to do something and they don't pay attention to, well, they're they're going to flood the market with fresh cash. They're going <clears> to <throat> go out there. They're going to buy bonds. And they do do that. They're still buying bonds. It's just, they're going to do that on a quantitative easing level to keep money moving into the economy because we stop the economy, so money has to fill the hole, right? And so, you know, freshly money goes out there, defers hyperinflation. Well, if you keep lockdowns in place, which they did in a lot of states, you keep people from exercising their right to, you know, make a living or have their business actually operate, except for the biggies, you know, um, the Walmarts of the world, the Home Depots of the world, the Amazons, the McDonald's. I mean, you look at those balance sheets over the last year and a half, they're the biggest balance sheets they've ever seen. They've made more money than they've ever seen. Um, When they defer hyperinflation, at least during 2020, because we only had one stimulus come out in like April or May of 2020, and that was allowed to go through the economy. Just remember, for everything they tinker with in the economy, whether it's interest rates or money supply, or even fiscal policy of taxation and government spending, it takes months for things to move through the economy. On average, it takes about six to nine months for decision A made in January to actually see fruit uh, before you can do the next move. That's why when they talk about overcorrection of the market or the overcorrection of interest rates by the Fed, when Greenspan was in power as the Fed chair, I mean, he would raise interest rates like literally 1% a month for a year or two, or not two, one year, but he would raise it every other month 
50 basis points, boom, boom, boom. And all of a sudden it went up 4%. And it's like, okay, the economy is, um, you know, slowing down because we're raising interest rates. Now we got to lower interest rates to speed it back up again and then drop just as precipitously on the other end of the coin. So he was just a big ebb and flow type of Fed, Fed person. Um, here, the Fed is just going to flood the financial market with cash. We're not going to worry about inflation because we can delay it because no one's earning money because we shut down the economy. We're going to plug the hole. We plugged it in, like like I said, April, May of 20. And then we get down into December right after the election and in the lame duck period, we need more stimulus, put out another $900 million. And they did that. And then Biden gets into office. Oh, we still need more stimulus. We have to help everybody, and, you know. And we're still shut down, basically. And so here comes another, you know, couple of trillion, you know, couple of trillion dollars. So between December and March, December of 20 and March of 2021, you have almost $3 trillion coming into the economy. And you didn't let any of the original $900 million get through before you came up with another piece of stimulus. Now they're talking about, well, maybe we should do a fourth stimulus. Well, I think political capital on that is spent. I don't think they can do it anymore because, again, that economy came back and the earners started earning again sooner than they needed them to. Remember in 08, 09, it took years for people to get back to full employment. You know, unemployment didn't stop really dropping until like 15. And then it got down after Trump into like the low fours, high threes, right? Well, this economy plummeted when we shut everything down and then it sprung back up just as quick. They thought it was going to be K-shaped, you know, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Well, it was a V-shaped. The rich still got richer. The poor didn't get as poor. But the V-shape brings the earners back quicker than the economy that pushed that money in and it hadn't had time to get through the economy. So we get some inflation. And we're seeing that now. Will it manifest the hyper? I doubt it. But I think we're going to have sustained inflation for a while. Number two, introduce mass vaccine programs and health passports to neo-feudal regime. I agree with that. Um, you're seeing it now. You know, if you have a passport, you can get into this restaurant. If you don't have your vaccine passport, um, you cannot go to that restaurant. You cannot go to that sporting event. You cannot go to that concert. You cannot participate in the economy, you know, or right now they're starting to push employers to start to mandate. Now that's going to be challenging the courts. It's never going to come to fruition, I don't think. But you never know how John Roberts is going to handle things as the Supreme Court Chief Justice. What's going you to know, come to courts, Rob? Sorry, I missed it. Just say um, what's going to come to fruition here in the courts, especially the high court, the Supreme Court, is going to be Biden's recent mandate of any employer with 100 employees or more, any federal employee, any first responder, you must get the vaccine, you're mandated. And if those who don't get it, you're going to have to prove negative tests and pay for those and all that stuff. So that's going to get challenged. I know, I know he was out there, you know, talking about it. But remember, we have a 10th Amendment in this country and states have rights and states can decide for themselves because what's not in the federal, not in the Constitution is hereby by the 10th Amendment at the arbiter of the state. The problem is Biden's out there saying, I'm just going to mandate it like a dictator. You know, we got rid of, we, you know, orange man bad. Let's get in a new 
fuzzy dictator, I guess is the way to put it. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, he's going to dictate that this is going to happen. Well, there's going to be challenges and it's going to have to go through the courts before any mandates actually go into place. But we are starting to see the beginnings of this neo-feudal system. And that is where like in New York, San Fran, L.A., Miami, you know, if you got if you can prove you're vaccinated, you can keep your job. You can go to the store. You can go to a, a, a sporting event. You can go to a, a movie. You can do you can participate in anything you want to do because you got the passport. Right. But if you don't have the passport. We're now going to consider you untouchable, kind of like the caste system we have we had in India and probably still there today. But you're going to become an untouchable. You can't participate in this. Oh, guess what? We're not going to pay for your your, uh, your testing. We're just going to fire you. You know, we need you to become vaccinated because the government told you you had to. Now, and you got to go back all the way to the PR campaign at the very beginning. Fauci and company. Part of my French fucked it up from the beginning. They totally screwed the pooch. Um, you know, it's to bend the curve. Then it's wait for the vaccine, and no one should go anywhere. We don't know what's going to happen. Meanwhile, when you when you want to talk about follow the science, you also got to follow the math. And the math says less than two percent of you are going to catch it, and less than one percent of that is actually going to die. So you have a 99.8% chance of survival, maybe even a little less than that, but not much. So again, I talked about it earlier, we're going to quarantine everyone, not just the sick. We're going to quarantine everyone. We're going to shut down people's businesses and livelihoods who are undercapitalized and cannot survive beyond a six-month shutdown. They just can't. And if they try to do a shutdown again, I don't know what this economy is going to look like at the end of that thing. Because I'm telling you what, I don't think the U.S. economy can withstand another systemically shut down economy. Just can't do it. And they also lost the narrative on protests throughout the summer of 2020. I'm not getting out there on a political bend, but, you know, if you're going to allow anyone to go out and protest, no masks, you're in a shutdown lockdown state, no mask, you can do whatever you want because you're protesting, which is your right under the Constitution, you can do that. But you're not going to enforce anything about no masks, no gatherings, 100, you know, whatever the rules and regs were before the protest. You're going to allow the protest to occur with no ramifications whatsoever. That makes people start thinking, well, why do you get to do this and that? Look at your, you know, Gavin Newsom. I mean, he was pictured in a restaurant, you know, middle of the pandemic, no French laundry, hanging out, you know, it's like, hey, you're going to do, he can do what you wants to do, but you can't do what you want to do. You can't keep your business in business because there's too many regulations, or we're just not going to allow your business to open because you can't have more than five people gather in one spot. And most businesses can't turn the lights on if you're only going to allow five customers in the door a day or an hour, you know. So those businesses go away, those jobs go away, and who's hit by that? The mid-skilled, low-skilled worker who has to now, hopefully a job will come available. You know, we talk about now we got, what, 10 million jobs for 8 million unemployed. Well, there's more jobs than people that are unemployed. Anybody who wants a job could get a job, right? Wrong. You know how they can't? Because not all 10 million jobs are qualified for the 8 million people that are unemployed. 
And what are you going to do for those people? Are you going to get them reeducated and somehow be able to take some of those jobs? Hopefully. Hopefully there's some funds in this infrastructure bill to do that. Because not every one of those jobs is a low to mid-skilled job. A lot of them are high-skilled jobs. And those, pe those people may not have the education, experience, et cetera, to take them. And so they're going to be perpetually unemployed? I mean, come on now. That, that just, that's insane to me. Um, one thing I'll say about unemployment rate, ignore what you hear on the news about what they call the U3 unemployment rate. That's the one that they say unemployment's only 4.9% or 5.2, right? Well, those are the people actively looking for a job, not the people who've given up. You need to look at what is known as the U6 unemployment rate. That is the real unemployment rate. That is the unemployment rate that takes into consideration those who gave up, those who are underemployed. You know, I used to be a bank president. Now I'm a janitor because um, I have to get some money in the door. Um, and, you know, that's the real unemployment rate. And that's steadily sitting at like 9%. That's a lot of people when you think about 9% of the working people in this country are not employed. Um, you couple that with the fact that the government is the biggest employer in this country at 6.1% of our workforce. Um, that's just the federal government. You add state and local and all those interagencies that connect with that, you're probably upwards of 10% of the people in this country are employed by government. That's huge. Well, getting back to the neo-feudal, Again, hey, if you're going to play ball, you're in, you're in for a treat. If you're not going to play a ball, well, tough shit. You're going to lose your house. You're probably going to lose your job. You're going to, you know, your life is going to become, well, collapsed. Mm -hmm. But it's because you didn't get that vaccine. Well, let's talk about that vaccine. Well, it really was a experimental vaccine. It wasn't a fully approved vaccine. It wasn't like they did like in polio, they did a seven years to develop that and they had to get full approval and they had to make sure it was safe. And they got everybody knowing it was going to be safe. And they weren't going to catch it because they got it. There could be some outliers, a breakthrough, one out of a million. Here, I'm a breakthrough on COVID. My wife's a breakthrough on COVID. So, yes, it kept us out of hospitals and it kept us out of, you know, incubating and having to have a ventilator. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, it didn't prevent me from catching COVID, um, but it helped me get through it, just like a flu shot. And I think that's where we're headed when it comes to pharmaceutical. <clears throat> this is just going to be a year over year shot, and they're going to have a stronger and stronger dose to be able to deal with variants. But, you know, it is a two-pillar neo-feudal system, and if we're not careful because you got people out there on TikTok or YouTube or <clears throat> Facebook, you know, telling people, we're just going to let you people die if you don't get the vaccine. Is that really how we're going to treat each other as human beings? I don't think so. I don't want that. <clears throat> but I want people to, you know, take their own, their own, you know, research and determine if it's something they want to do. Um, again, I think the PR battle is lost. I don't think you can convince any anti-vaxxer that getting the vaccine is the best thing for them. I think in time, unfortunately, I think people will acquiesce because they don't want to be in the wrong side of the neo-feudal system. They don't want to be a serf. They want to be a baron. So 
they're going to get the they're going to get the vaccine. Hmm. <clears throat> is that right? No, I don't think it is. Um, I think people need to make that decision for themselves. You know, I never got flu shots up until probably five years ago. Hmm. Never got a flu hmm. shot, not because I thought the flu shot was a problem. I just never thought I needed it. Mm-hmm. But because I have sleep apnea, the flu would really do havoc on me. So I get the flu shot. So if I catch the flu, I'll bounce through it. Same thing is going to happen here with COVID. You're not going to have a polio level cure. You're going to have a flu-like um, treatment. But that, that's another thing. We needed treatments. Could there have been a cocktail of drugs that helped people with COVID? We'll never know because they weren't allowed to really do anything like that. <coughs> they have. What we do know is either. President uh, Trump had a cocktail before uh, the vaccine, if, I'm, if I remember correctly. Well, they did find that if they caught it early enough in the infection phase that you could do a cocktail. But that was such a narrow window for people who got it that not everyone could get to that, not just because it was the president who got it. But it is a very narrow window when you catch COVID to allow yourself to get that cocktail. But so it's not an official treatment because not everybody could have access to it because it's such a narrow window. Let's think about Fauci with AIDS real quick. You know, AIDS, we didn't sit around and wait for a cure because people were dying so fast from it when HIV manifests to AIDS. And they quickly found treatments, right? because cures weren't coming around the corner and we have to save lives. Why didn't we take the similar approach to COVID? Yeah, let's hope we can get a cure at some point, but let's fix it now and stop the bleeding and get people back to doing their lives. We didn't even attempt it. This, this was actually spoken in the article. Like He speaks to the fact that there were treatments. I mean, Kenny's mentioned in South America ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, and various things like this, that could be, I mean, you certainly wanted to get it earlier if possible, but there are people, I mean, doctors who are saying 80% of their clients never were hospitalized, even when they caught COVID and had a case of it with with symptoms and things like that. Um, But he basically lays out in this article, the fact that emergency youth authorization of vaccines would not then be possible if there are other treatments. Exactly. So, so he connects the downplaying of those treatments that which actually were taking place um, or mm-hmm. were trying to be done. And again, he's saying that there was an economic interest and a political interest in, in suppressing that. Completely. I, completely. I mean, big pharma doesn't make money because they have uh, a one and done shot like the polio vaccine. Well, I just want to make a comment first before we move on and see what direction. I wanted to share my screen very quickly because I thought it was very important. Can you give me the access to India? Yeah, uh, you should be able to. All right. Well, it's relevant. And I, you know, we were talking about, you know, it's interesting. Rob had said the French laundry, right? And Newsom. Well, yeah. I want to show up. I want to show a picture of my girlfriend and my, or my ex-girlfriend here. Let's see. I want to show this picture because uh, here we have, and only I can criticize her. Here we have uh, the very well-known AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And she here is dressed, right? And she went to the Met Gala. And one of the most uh, prominent uh, social Democrat 
um, representatives in Washington, D.C., that uh, criticizes um, <clears throat> folks for being anti-maskers or criticizes folks for um, not taking precautions or, 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 or joining big indoor uh, venues or uh, even just people who uh, just she criticizes the rich, no? And here she is trying to take a play on some on this designer of uh, her dress that attacks the rich, no? And they went to the Met Gala. And what I find interesting, and Glenn Greenwald talks about it, which is how I got this came to my attention because I got the email newsletter. And I think people should look at his analysis of it. And I will link to the description uh, in the episode notes, the link to Glenn, Glenn Greenwald, uh, another one of my crushes. Um, here is that every one of these workers at this Met Gala is wearing a mask. You see it here. I don't know if you can see here. This yeah. is one of the workers. Mm -hmm. Every one of the attendees that were um, serving is wearing a mask, except the people, the, the rich, no? And, and the attending, the rich. Yes, right. And I just wanted to point note to it because I thought it was interesting that you know, it always falls on the working people. It's always the people who are trying to serve or trying to make a living or trying who are are being repressed, are being um, ignored and taken away their freedom and their choices. And yet we have people who prominent roles, such as people who have um, are in leadership, like Gavin Newsom, who you pointed out, who went to the French Laundry. And which is the impetus of why we had the recall. And even though Gavin Newsom had won um, and there was a no on the recall, I think it shows that there is there is a frustration. That, I mean, the recall happened because of this in this 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 frustration, as you were pointing out, to how the protests were done demonstration health. You can go to some, but you cannot, others are restricted, or you're not allowed to do certain things. And this is really um, something that we have to take notice if the rich or as the people in government can see uh, if they're saying that we should dress or excuse me if we should wear the masks so we should stay indoors but they themselves are not doing it and they're they have um uh they have uh, knowledge or they are preview to uh what's really happening such as the science or whatever they're preview to before we are uh, about what's really going on then they should be an indicator of how we should perform or how should we, what we should be doing. And uh, and I think that if they feel like they can go off without masks, then I think we should be as well. That's the message I get from this, right? Because they're the ones exactly. who are in the know. And if they're the ones in the know, and it's so dangerous, right, for mm -hmm. us to be going anywhere, and but yet you can go to the French Laundry, and this is before the vaccines were rolled out with Gavin Newsom, then why can't we go to restaurants? Why can't we have these gatherings as well, no? So I just thought it was interesting when we were reading this too from uh, those key important notes uh, that the article was pointing out to, yeah. that I thought it was very important for us to look at, no? That's a great uh, comment. Oh, I agree. I, you know, it's, it points out the hypocrisy, the inconsistency, the the lies, exactly. a lot of the lies and you know and it is symbolic of that number two part of that last paragraph the new feudal order you know that vaccine passports because i i think that's the end goal here because it has applications for many things to control the working class mm -hmm. so many ways um 
And so, you know, we're going to live, you know, just like, you know, I, I believe that the age of terrorism was, you know, propped up to advance some nefarious things to control people, to control the working class, to advance, you know, the, the interest of the ruling class. This is a, a similar play, you know, in my book. And, and so vaccine passports, you know, they're going to, they're coming, they're going to stay, you know. And, you know, it's about digital identities, it's about, you know, the, like we said earlier, uh, the restructuring of capitalism. You know, some of the old players are on their way out. You know, if you want to look at the belly of the bees, come to California, come to the, you know, Silicon Valley, you know, come to, you know, the, the te technocratic, you know, people that think that they can manage people, you know, that think mm -hmm. that people need to be managed, you know, that, that believe that we can handle ourselves um without their you know instructions and so it's important because also the mandates that biden is pushing doesn't affect congress right and their aids it only affects people right so that's another part of this puzzle right of the hypocrisy of the ruling class those, those elite and all the not all those wannabes you know like i don't give a shit for those you know especially those people that practice identity politics you know my community that's what i'm speaking to that that you know, hold people like AOC in high regard, you know, even though they're in the same, you know, bullshit, sending us lies like tax the rich, you know, beautiful soundbite. But, you know, you're going to trust a, a system that is made by them for them, you know, because whatever way we, de we decide, uh, you know, I think right, left, middle, whatever, we know we don't have power. You know, we don't have a lot of power. We're going to have to find ways to get it back you know, into push back because again, these systems are, are not for them. Passports have never been for the ultra rich, for the ruling class. Mm -hmm. They move freely around the world, you know, and, and so this is an, a call for everyone, not, you know, not right, left, everyone who, you know, who I, I consider the working class, um, you know, and, and yeah, it's just upsetting and, and, you know, mm -hmm. I'm one of those people that is facing termination by October 13th here. I don't have the vaccine. And, you know, by October 13th, I, I might lose my job, you know, because either, you know, whatever. But uh, it, it's, it's, it, it's, it's created massive anxiety, a job that I've done for 13 years that I've done very well, you know, that I'm needed at, you know, and, 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 and it is atrocious to see people that, I that I've organized with, right? That we're supposed to be advocating for people. We're supposed to be advocating for the, the, the little ones. Those people are, you know, just like you said, Rob, they're, they're basically saying you're shit out of luck. You know, and, and, and how vicious that is, you know, is. And how vicious and, 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 and disheartening. And so, yeah, you know, when I, when I hear people advocating for vaccine mandates, in vaccine passports, I see AOC being hypocrite. I, I just want to say one thing to build on Kenny real to build on Kenny real quick. Um, if you think about it, you know, vaccine passports are just another way to divide and conquer. Um, kind of like how does a prison operate when you only have a hundred guards and you have ten thousand inmates? Well, they keep interfighting amongst themselves and none of them all acquiesce or coalesce and push back if they're being abused by guards or anything of that nature. Same thing here. You know, we got enough people convinced that vaccine passports, well, well that's just the way it's going to be. And, you know, those people don't want to get vaccinated. Fuck them, you know. And it's like, wait a second, you know. 
it's a different situation. This isn't this isn't polio. You're not going to get paralyzed. This isn't, you know, and the, the Spanish flu when we didn't have any type of medical, you know, technologies or, you know, pharmaceutical companies or the ability to fight it. Um, this people were dying in the streets. This is a back. This is a covid uh, virus that is barely killing anybody. When you really do the math, it's not really killing as many people as you think. Am I upset about this people dying? Definitely. Do I think they 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 could have maybe not died? But when you start to break down the math on those numbers, autoimmune issues, overweight, over 60, you know, you start doing the math and you start saying, okay, the probability of a person under 40 getting it is much lower than somebody over 60. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. But again, I think passports is another divide and conquer method between the rich and the poor, the black and the white. Um, you know, any way that we, any way that the government can kind of get factions butting up against one another and not coming together in a unified way and push back. And I think this is the line. And if I, I hope we can organize enough people. In, in the United States to push back hard against these vaccine passports. Um, you know, if this was a, 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 if we had, you know, bring out your dead from, you know, Monty Python, Holy Grail, and we had dead in the streets and people were just falling over like it was the uh, rapture. Okay, fine. I better be getting in line and start taking a vaccine to somehow save your life. That's one thing. But there isn't that level of need. But yet we're going to convince ourselves that there is that level of need. And we're going to convince ourselves, too, that, okay, everybody needs the vaccine. And if you don't have it, well, we're going to just shut you down. Why aren't we coming together and saying the map doesn't tell us that this is as needed as you think it is? And I think that's the other PR issue that they lose on is the math isn't there. Yes, the science of rubbing your of washing your hands and social distancing and masking prevents it. And, you know, the science of if you catch it, it's going to be different for everybody. And that is another variable here. I had almost no symptoms. My wife, frankly, if she didn't have the vaccine, I think she would have been in a hospital. But she did, thank God. But that's our choice to get that vaccine. So should we force people to get something for less than 2% chance of death? No, I don't think so. And I think we as a people, right, left, north and south, need to come together and push back on these vaccine passports because if we don't draw a line in the sand somewhere and this is a test folks i guarantee you this this is a test if they can get away with it what's next mm-hmm. it's gonna make I, 1984 spin on its head george orwell's rolling over in his grave a hundred times over like, how did you let this happen you're on the verge of it how are you letting it happen what Rob is pointing to, which is very important because we have folks here who have been vaccinated and who are not vaccinated are either side. It's not about whether you are vaccinated or unvaccinated. It's about, I think I want to, I've summarized it in, in key points, which is it's a shutdown of the conversation around cost-benefit analysis, such as lockdown of schools and what that does with our mental health versus what that does for our economy or what it does not. So that's the, so the shutdown of conversations around cost-benefit analysis. It's about censorship. Because of those who don't, who want to look into, este, into the vaccines, whether their efficacy or whether what choices they'll make on their own, whether they're choosing to be vaccinated or not, they can't look it up because everything is being censored around it. So it's about censorship. 
Three, it's about choice. If you want to get vaccinated, get vaccinated. If you don't want to get vaccinated, don't get vaccinated, but leave it to choice. And the the fourth, it's about surveillance because the passports are about centralizing everyone's information on a very grand scale that has never been done before. And five, the most important for big tech, it's about data data storage slash collection. It's about more big companies having access to your data as we have seen with Facebook, YouTube, and Amazon, and all the big companies out there that are trying to collect their data as we have, as Alison McDowell has normally, and Andy has said uh, quite frequently here, uh, that is the new oil. So I think it's it's about that. And I want to center it around yes, that, that um, from what your comments said, not to say that we can't discuss other things, but it's because lots of people are wondering, oh, if I'm vaccinated, are we able to ha- be a part of this discussion? Of course you are. Of course you are, because it's about these key points that I have just laid out, these five key points that it's not whether you want to get vaccinated or not vaccinated, because I'm not suggesting for people to get vaccinated or unvaccinated. I'm just saying these are the things that are at stake. Just if you think you're vaccinated and you're off the hook, you're completely wrong. This involves everyone. Exactly. Yeah. And my feeling is, is we've, I think we should kind of call this part to an end because what we've done essentially is say, look, all this stuff that you thought, lockdowns and vaccines and, uh, you know, <laughs> shutting down the economy that you thought was due to COVID, what, what this article and what we're trying to lay out here had a different origin, had an, an origin that's rooted in the economy that's closer to understand. You, you better to look at 2008 to understand this than look at, two, look at 1918. You know, um, that's kind of what we're laying out here. But I think there's a question we left hanging and I don't want to answer it right now because of the rest of the article talks about, well, then how is the economy being, economy being reorganized? Um, because there is a reorganization going on here. Um, and I would want to start this conversation again. Maybe we get Rob back to talk yeah. about what's what's the nature of the reorganization at the economic level? What's reorganization happening at the finance level and the monetary policy level? I think there's a discussion to be had that this article begins to touch to that I think we could have a, at, a, at another time. Yeah, I think there's a lot more that we can uncover. Yeah, for sure. It's like a two-parter. Yeah. I would definitely want to get, like, me being a restaurant manager, you know, and, like, we were massive struggles in finding, you know, qualified people to do things, you know, and and talking about that and maybe taking a snapshot to see where we're at at that time. Because I do think there's other things we don't we don't know we don't yet know as to like the dynamics of what's happening and how this is moving people out of certain sectors into others. So I'd be curious to discuss that too. Okay. But I think with the the comments you made, Robert, about particularly bringing it back to the see, understanding that the vaccine mandates are a line in the sand here that's so important. I think that's the way that I would. <laughs> I think that's the critical thing people should take away is that this thing has to be fought because there's so many, so many implications to losing that battle. It's a slope that we don't want to go down because like I said a minute ago, if they can get away with it and that's they, the ominous government, if they can get away with this and people can are segregated into two classes in a feudal system, what what's next and we're we're just going to go for broke it's like it's like you know pushing all in in a poker game they're just gonna say well know what we got away with all that all right we're pushing it all in now we're just going to go for it 
Mm-hmm. And I don't know what go for it means in the future. And I fear for that day. Yeah. Maybe that'll be the, the tipping point where people do just say, you know what? No more. Maybe. But I don't think we should wait that long. Yeah. Well, that does it for this week's episode until we have another part two with uh, Rob Doyle. Um, what's left is a weekly political podcast last channel challenging the mainstream left. We post information about our topics and our guests on the episode notes where we found this episode or on our blog at what-s-left.webnote.com. You can find past episodes to this podcast last channel there and connect with us. I remind folks that if you like anything you have heard here, please share your favorite episode, rate, review, subscribe, uh, jot on our information to any of our um, platforms on Spotify, iTunes Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, BitChute, Odyssey, O-D-Y-S-E-E, YouTube, or now Telegram. And if you would like to give us feedback about something you've heard or suggest something for us to cover, contact us through our blog. Um, thank you. I'm Eduardo Barca with co-host uh, Kenny Cepeda and Andy Lipson. Thank you very much, Rob, for being with us. All right.